Isn't it good to be coming around God's Word this morning? It's my absolute pleasure to be continuing this series uh, in the book of 1 Peter. And we've been looking at this study called A Gospel-Shaped Life. And we've been seeing the way that this book of 1 Peter uh, speaks to us. But it also comes from the heart of Peter. And we spent the first couple of weeks in this series exploring him, the disciple Peter, as he walked with Jesus and as he learnt from Jesus uh, and as he stuffed up. Um, And one of the things I love about Peter, I love the fact that he, he is very real. He's a key figure within the early church. He becomes a leader of the early church. He's a leader of the disciples. Uh, but he has these amazing flashes of faith. He has these moments where he's really uh, switched on, he's walking on water, and then he has these great moments of fear and doubt and trouble and trial and where he betrays and struggles and he is afraid. And I don't know if that resonates with you this morning. I know for many of us, we can probably identify with a number of people in Scripture, but I know for me, Peter is one that is always uh, encouraging and inspiring for me because there are moments of faith followed by moments of fear, and that seems very, very real to us. And this book, uh, we know from the previous weeks, and if you missed them, I'd encourage you to look them up online. You can check them out on YouTube or the church's uh, website. But Peter is writing to what he calls these aliens that have been scattered. And Peter's writing during this time where uh, the Emperor Nero has, has come and he is calling these early believers, the early church is calling them to be courageous, to have faith in the face of suffering. He's, he's reaching out to them and saying, Get the right perspective of your trouble. Get the right perspective of your trials, knowing that the moment is just a brief moment in eternity. That If you get that right perspective, it will give you the courage that you need to face the trials that you are facing now. And so this morning we're in 1 Peter in chapter 2, and we're starting at verse 13 today. If you've got your Bibles, you might like to turn there. Um, the words will be up on the screen. And we're going to go all the way through to 1 Peter 3.7. So we've got quite a lot of ground to cover. Why don't we pray as we open God's Word? Father, we just pray this morning that you would reveal yourself to us through your Word. Lord God, we come with listening ears. We come with hearts that are soft and ready to receive. Lord, we pray that you would speak into those parts of our lives, Lord, where uh, perhaps we haven't been open to your Word before, but today we are. Lord God, that you would... Uh, through the power of your Holy Spirit, bring these words to life in our lives. Amen. I wonder if you've ever purchased a lemon. Uh, by a lemon, I don't mean from the grocery store. I mean, you've ever purchased something that had great promise and great hope, but ended up being a complete dud. Uh, a number of years ago, quite a few years ago now, Cindy and I uh, were ready to purchase our first car. We'd been driving a bubble car. I wonder if you remember the Mazda 121s. We had a white bubble car uh, and we loved it. I loved it. Uh, but now was time to go and get a brand new car. And, and I'm the kind of person, and Cindy will tell you this, that if I'm making any kind of purchase I'm interested in, I will spend a long time researching. I'll look at all the options. I will read every review. I'll talk to people. And so we went and test drove like every car. Um, and uh, I'm sure the car people were probably sick of me. Uh, we went and asked every question. I looked at everything on the web. 
And we purchased this car and it was, well, it was great. It had so much promise for us. It had power steering, which we didn't have. It had air conditioning. It had electric windows. It had all of these fancy things. It had a CD player. Um, this, was, this was how great this car was. And within about six months, things started to go wrong on it. And I remember the first thing that went wrong, I took it back to the dealer and they said, oh, look, you know, this is, it's not covered under the warranty. You'd have to go to somebody else. I took it to somebody else. And they said, this car is our specialty and we have never seen this go wrong before. We've never seen this go wrong in a, in a new one of these. And so we paid a couple of thousand bucks and we had that fixed. And about three months later, we took it in for another service and they said, there's another problem with it, something completely different. Again, we took it back to these, uh, these mechanics and they said, we've never seen this go wrong before. And so about six months into having this brand new car that we had um, paid a lot of money for, that we had received with a lot of hope and joy, uh, we had... Uh, dropped about, I think it was about $4,000 of repairs on it. And so we just took it back to a dealer and we traded it in and we got a different car. But I still remember the frustration. I still remember the, the anger that it brought that we felt like we'd been dudded. We really felt that what we'd signed up for, what we had purchased was going to be great and it really wasn't. And I, and I was thinking this week as I was looking at this passage, I wonder if that is how these readers, uh, the, these first people that Peter is writing to, I wonder if that's how they felt. Because you see, they had these are first generation of, of Christ followers. These are people who have come to faith in the early days of the church. Some of these would have actually met Jesus. They would have heard him teaching. Others would have heard from the apostles about him. And through the power of the Holy Spirit, their lives had been changed and they had chosen to follow him. I think sometimes we get the idea that they, had, they knew all of the theology, that they knew everything there was to know about God's word and, and what Jesus had taught, and they understood everything that Jesus had said. But I think that's probably not the accurate view. They were kind of like many of us. They knew the, the amazingness of Christ, his life, his death, his resurrection. They knew that, and they were working out the rest as they went. They were kind of working out the rest as they learned and they spoke and they were taught. But I wonder if this is how they felt. I wonder if they felt that they'd been sold a bit of a lemon because here they are having chosen to follow Christ. And Peter, as I said, calls them aliens, calls them scattered because they've scattered from this brutal emperor who actually takes joy in, in um, being barbaric, in being violent, in the persecution and the killing of Christians. I wonder if they felt they had been dealt an unfair hand. I wonder if they thought when they first came to Christ that maybe that would open up the door of, of a new season of prosperity, that it would be a guarantee of wealth, that it would be um, uh, open up the door of positions of power and influence, that it would um, mean that life just kind of panned out totally fine and everything was good. But instead they find themselves scattered, afraid. There have been many of them disowned by their families. Many of them have been treated cruelly by bosses or lost jobs. They've been kicked out of their homes and their towns and they're being persecuted by government officials. And I wonder how you'd respond to that. I wonder if you put yourself, and maybe for some of you there's something there that resonates. Maybe your family when you came to faith wanted nothing to do with you. Or maybe in your workplace when you've had that opportunity to speak about faith, your boss has said, this is ridiculous. Maybe there is something there that resonates with you. 
that somehow our faithful following of Christ has led to us being scattered, that it's led to pain, that it's led to struggle. And I think there's a couple of responses that often come with that. I think sometimes human nature leads us, some of us maybe because of our personality, we get angry. We get really angry. We think we're going to fight back in the face of injustice. We're not going to stand for this. We go into attack mode and decide we're going to push our case. We're going to right these wrongs. I think some of us, perhaps, we feel sorry for ourselves and we take a kind of woe is me mentality and we take every opportunity to speak to others about how unfair things are, how, how bad a hand we've been dealt. And I think the other approach is to bury our heads in the sand. Some of us kind of push the feelings down. We don't want to face it. We don't want to deal with it. We kind of just push it down and it festers and it, and it becomes bitter and hateful over time. And I wonder if the readers thought, those who are hearing this letter as it's, this scroll as it's open to them, I wonder if they thought, which one of these approaches is Peter going to say we should take? We are under persecution. It is unjust. It is unfair. I wonder what Peter is going to say to us. Is he going to say to us, let's rise up? Let's get um, weapons. Let's overthrow Nero. Maybe he'd say, let's march the streets. Let's take back our rightful place. I wonder if he if they thought that he was going to say, let's just spend time in these cloistered Christian communities moaning about the world and, and, and moaning about the persecution, I wonder if they thought that he was going to say, well, there's hopeless. There's actually nothing that can be done, so let's just push it down, ignore it, and get on with our lives. But instead, Peter writes, in 1 Peter 2 and verse 13, he writes this, he says, For the Lord's sake, submit to all human authority, whether the king is head of state or the official he has appointed. For the king has sent them to punish those who do wrong and to honor those who do right. Peter says something radical to them straight away. He says, he doesn't say to them, let's fight back. He doesn't say to them, let's ignore it. He actually says something very different. He says, you need to submit. You need to submit to human authority because for the Lord's sake, they have a role to play. We might find that easy now. We might kind of find that you know, we live in a fairly stable democracy. Most of the laws kind of mostly seem reasonable. They mostly seem okay. But let's position ourselves as these readers who have fled for their lives, who are hearing these stories of brutal murders from Nero. Peter says, submit to all human authority, including Nero. And I'd say to you this morning, this is just like a little aside. Scripture is not simple. And we know that this idea of um, pagan governments, of, of laws that are cruel, of, of things that conflict with what the Bible teaches us, is a very, there's, a, there's a real tension there. And Scripture deals with that. If you look at Daniel 6, Mark 6, Acts 5, Romans 13, 1 Timothy 2, they all deal with aspects of that. But Peter's not going there in this letter. There are other parts in Scripture that help us to balance that tension. He is, his call is a very specific call. His call is to submission. And he goes on to say in verse 15 why this is important. He says, It is God's will that your honourable lives should silence those ignorant people who make foolish accusations against you. For you are free, yet you are God's slaves. So don't use your freedom as an excuse to do evil. 
Respect everyone and love the family of believers. Fear God and respect the king. You see, Peter tells them that you need to submit, but then he tells them why. And the why is that they are to live honorable lives so they will silence their critics. And they knew what he was talking about because one of the big criticisms of the early believers was that they were a band of subversives that they were gathering, that their intention was to seize control and to overthrow the government. And so Peter says, submit, because if you submit, then your honourable lives will silence those who criticise. They will silence those who criticise. And you see his call is echoing the call of Christ. And I want you to get this this morning, because this is probably the key in this section of the passage. He is saying that the that the call of Christ is not to establish an earthly kingdom, but rather to establish in the human heart the kingdom of God. That this new way of living would, would uh, make us have the right perspective that we would see struggle and trials and pain as temporary afflictions in light of the eternal. That is what he is telling them. He's saying, honor the government. And when you submit to human authority in the Greek, the word he's actually saying is, he's saying you'll muzzle, you'll literally muzzle like we would muzzle a dog. You'll muzzle those who make these claims against you. That if you live in an honorable way towards the authorities and the rulers, that you will close their mouths, that they will not have the capacity or the power or the evidence to make these claims against you. But he says to them more than that, live honorable lives. Don't allow the freedom that you have in Christ to lead you to a place where you think you are so free that it enables a sinfulness through a lack of submission. But rather demonstrate that in salvation we are now servants of Christ. That we are servants of the one who modeled this very submission. And so Peter is is calling them to do that. And he finishes with these four brief statements, which are probably, uh, we could probably spend months just trying to work these out and, and think about how we could apply these in our lives. But he says, respect everyone, even those who persecute you, even those whose lives are lived in a different way to yours, even those who have different beliefs or are culturally different, um, even those who might be doing wrong by you, respect everyone. He says, love the family of believers. I think that's probably a challenge for some of us in and of itself, but love the family of believers. You see, Jesus's own words in John 13 tell us that we're to love one another and in doing so that the world will see that we are followers of Christ. And Peter is reiterating this. It says we're to fear God, fear God, have such a deep reverent understanding of God's sovereignty and of his power that it fills and shapes our lives we are to fear God and lastly says respect the king not just the one who you voted for that's in authority not just the one who has policies that line up with what you think but rather respect show them respect even in spite of these things And in the next part of the passage that we're going to look at today, he then drills into some specific examples. I want to say to you before we get there that we're not going to have time to outwork every little part of this. And he deals with a couple of things that sometimes people find quite challenging. And what I would say to you this morning is just because we don't get into the answers of these things this morning, it doesn't mean that Scripture doesn't have them. 
So I would encourage you, if there's something there this morning that you think, oh, I don't understand this or I don't understand that, I want you to come and, and we'll have a chat. And so if you have a look at verse 18, uh, there's quite a long section here that we're going to read together down to verse 25. It says this. You who are slaves must submit to your masters and with all respect, do what they tell you, not only if they are kind and reasonable, but even if they are cruel. For God is pleased when conscious of his will, you patiently endure unjust treatment. Of course, of course, you get no credit for being patient if you are beaten for doing wrong. But if you suffer for doing good and endure it patiently, God is pleased with you. For God called you to do good, even if it means suffering, just as Christ suffered for you. He is your example and you must follow in his steps. For God called you to do good, even if it means suffering, just as Christ suffered for you. Um, verse 22, sorry, we've repeated that. Verse 22, he never sinned, nor ever deceived anyone. He did not retaliate when he was insulted, nor threaten revenge when he suffered. He left his case in the hands of God, who always judges fairly. He personally carried our sins in his body on the cross, so that we can be dead to sin and live for what is right. By his wounds you are healed. Once you were like sheep who wandered away, but now you have turned to your shepherd, the guardian of your souls. He, he speaks now to slaves. And this is actually a really significant audience that he's writing to because there's estimates are that there was something like 60 million slaves in the Roman Empire. 60 million slaves. And there are a couple of points I just really briefly want to touch on that in the first century, slavery was in some ways uh, different to the slavery we know of today. And in some ways, it was the same. You see, it was a society when there was no social welfare, there was no bankruptcy law. And if you were vulnerable, you were very, very vulnerable. And so slavery was often a way that people weren't necessarily born into it, but they had to enter it as a way of paying off their debts. It was not attached to a social class or to a specific race. You see, slaves within the society that Peter's writing to came from a mixture of backgrounds. They came from a mixture of cultures. Some were from the nobility. Some were from the poorer classes. And they served in many roles. There were slaves that were doctors. They held positions of authority. There were some who were builders. There were others who were household servants. But most importantly, slavery still meant that that person was not really a person. They had lost their sense of personhood or their agency. You see, slaves were not considered people. They were property. And while some of them enjoyed um, some kind of freedoms and some good goodness in life, many of them faced the unjust persecution and beatings of masters. And you see, it's important to, to know that this is not, and, and I've heard it actually claimed that this passage is somehow a scriptural endorsement of slavery. And it's absolutely not. You see, Peter is addressing a very specific thing here, but Scripture really deals with this matter in, in Colossians 4 and Ephesians 6, and it deals with it in this incredibly countercultural way. You've got to understand that slavery was embedded within society. It was government-endorsed. It was considered a normal practice. And, and, and in those passages and, and in here, Peter is writing to slaves as if they are brothers and sisters in Christ. 
You see, Colossians and Ephesians both tell them that God shows no favoritism, that he doesn't have a rank, that he doesn't see them as slaves, that they are on the same footing as their masters, which is an incredible thing. In the book of Philemon, uh, there's this incredible story of, of this slave who runs away to Paul, um, Onesimus, and Onesimus has fled his, his, his master, Philemon, and, and Paul writes to Philemon and says to him, receive him back. I want you to receive him back. Even though you could punish him, even though you could put him to death, I want you to receive Onesimus as if he was me, as if it was me, Paul. I want you to, if he's robbed anything of you, I want you to put it on my tab. I want you to um, take that payment from me. I want you to treat this slave as if it was Christ himself. That's radical. I don't think we can kind of grasp how radical and countercultural it is to see these people as if they are Christ himself. And it's not until uh, the 18th century that we see uh, government-endorsed slavery um, eradicated on, on the back of um, prominent Christian leaders. But again, remember, Peter is speaking about the kingdom of God is not about overthrowing society, but instead it's about overthrowing the sinfulness of the human heart. The kingdom of God is about not transformation on the streets of Rome, but it is about the transformation in the heart of believers. And what an incredible thing this is. And so he writes to these slaves and he calls them, hold up under the suffering. Just like Christ was unjustly persecuted, just like he was battered and, and punished and beaten, I want you to um, focus yourself on him. And when you're enduring these things, you are representing Christ. You are representing Christ. God sees the transformation in your heart when you suffer unjustly, and he is pleased with you. And what an incredible thing that is. And then he turns to another group. And at the start of chapter 3, he says this, he turns to wives and he says, in the same way, he's saying in the same way as Christ. He's pointing them back again to the model of Christ. He's saying, in the same way, you wives must accept the authority of your husbands. Then even if some refuse to obey the good news, your godly lives will speak to them without any words. They'll be won over by observing your pure and reverent lives. Don't be concerned about the outward beauty of fancy hairstyles, expensive jewelry, or beautiful clothes. You should clothe yourselves instead with the beauty that comes from within, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is so precious to God. This is how the holy women of old made themselves beautiful. They put their trust in God and accepted the authority of their husbands. For instance, Sarah obeyed her husband Abraham and called him her master. You are her daughters when you do what is right without fear of what your husbands might do. And so he starts in the same way, just like Christ. And he starts by challenging wives to accept the authority of their husbands. And before we think, well, this is out outrageous, this is old-fashioned, don't worry, he speaks to husbands in a minute. And he has some very, very strong words for husbands. He says, specifically, the first group he's speaking to is wives whose husbands have not come to Christ. And he says to them, uh, set about demonstrating the reality of a transformed life that your husband might be one to God. 
So set about demonstrating the way that God would have you live this call of a transformed heart. And then he starts speaking, and we get confused about this. This is what I was telling you before. We won't answer everything, but he starts speaking about the beauty of fancy hairstyles, expensive jewelry, or beautiful clothes. I was thinking about writing that and putting it on our wall at home. Um, all the husbands say amen to that. Um, but in all seriousness, some of the passages you actually see, um, and the NASB uh, actually puts in a, in a word here to represent the Greek a little bit more directly. It says, don't be concerned merely about the outward beauty. You see, Peter is not saying, don't worry about that stuff at all. Or, as some churches will say, that it's wrong. That you shouldn't have um, uh, anything, you shouldn't have nice jewelry, you shouldn't wear nice clothes. He's not saying that. He's not issuing an edict against them. He's saying, get the balance right. Get the balance right. Be more concerned about the gentleness of your spirit, which I'll remind you is a characteristic that should mark the life of both male and female believers. Gentleness is one of these fruit of the spirit. And so he's saying, get the balance right. Show gentleness in your spirit because that will show the mark of the Holy Spirit at work in your life. Don't be so fixated and concerned on the outward things. Instead, focus on the inward things. Show a transformed heart which comes from a trust of God, which shows a respect for your husbands. And then he turns to husbands in verse 7. And he says this, In the same way, you husbands must give honor to your wives. Treat your wife with understanding as you live together. She may be weaker than you are, but she is your equal partner in God's gift of new life. Treat her as you should, so your prayers will not be hindered. You see, he starts with the same thing again. He turns to husbands and he says, In the same way. In the same way as Christ. In the same way as Christ, this is what I want you to do. And if we reworded it slightly to, to, to access the meaning here, Peter's saying this, Husbands, show that you honour your wife by putting her at the top of your priority list. Seek to not just live with your wife, but to dwell with her. Take on the responsibility for the closeness between you. Seek to know your wife deeply. Know her so deeply that you develop a sensitivity to her needs that takes the place of your own priorities or desires. Your wife might be physically weaker than you are, but do not for a moment use this to control or abuse because she is your equal in the kingdom of God. And what a remarkable thing in a patriarchal society where men were really um, uh, much more kind of uh, raised up over women. Peter speaks to the husbands and says, she's your equal. You are actually to put your desires, your wants to the side. You are not just to uh, run about uh, doing your job and, and engaging in the social sphere, sphere. You are to dwell with your wife. You are to prioritize her. You are to really know her. And that when you do, and this is a, pro a promise to both husbands and wives, that when you get this right, when you get this balance right, it will result in a productive prayer life. What an incredible promise that is, because I think if all of us came in this morning and I said, do you want a productive prayer life? Every single one of us would say yes. 
So if you are here this morning and you have a wife or a husband, it says if we do these things, if we honor one another, if we respect one another, if we put them first, that it will result in a productive prayer life. Praise God for that. We've covered a lot of ground this morning. We're out of time. But I want to kind of drill us back to this main idea, this overarching uh, focus of the text. And it's this. Peter is saying the transformation that comes through a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ is not the transformation of earthly rulers into godly leaders. It isn't the overthrow of ungodly governments. It isn't the absence of unfair laws. It isn't justice playing out in every situation. It isn't a carefree life for the believer free from suffering and persecution. It isn't for for us in our own context. It isn't even the transformation of a hostile boss or an unpleasant colleague, the transformation that we are called to focus on is the transformation of our hearts to be more and more like Christ. Because Peter says that when this transformation happens, this radical change of our lives from the inside out, that when we focus on that in the face of trouble and trial, when we feel persecuted, when we feel like we've been sold a lemon in life, That when we do that, when we seek Christ and we are transformed, especially in times of struggle, that others will see the reflection of Christ in us and they will seek that transformation for themselves. And what an incredible and challenging call that is to put first a transformation of our own hearts and lives to become more and more Christ-like in every situation so that others might see the result of Christ's work in us and want that for themselves. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you for this letter that Peter writes to um, believers who are in such a horrible situation. Lord, and, and, and you say to them, focus on me. Focus on the transform, uh, transformational work I want to do in your heart. Under suffering and trial, look to me. Look to the sacrifice and the model of Christ who in the most horrible circumstances and completely unjustly faced criticism, faced beating, faced death. And and Christ, we look to you this morning. We ask, Holy Spirit, that through your power that you would be transforming us from the inside out more and more into your likeness, that we might face each circumstance, we might face each affliction, we might face each trial, and we might bear up under it, knowing that it is but a fleeting moment in the light of eternity. Lord, that you you see us, and that you are transforming us, and that in doing that, Lord, you are enabling us to be an effective witness for you in our homes, God, in our workplaces, in our neighborhoods and in this city, Father, that we would be be people who represent you well. And so, God, we look to you this morning. Lord, I pray this morning, particularly for those in the church who might be really struggling under uh, what is unjust persecution. God, maybe it's with a family member, Father, maybe it's with a, a boss or a colleague or just a sense of 
of feeling like even in their faith, God, that they are being persecuted, that they're being criticized. God, that it's not easy, but that you would help us to bear up under it and do it with joy. Lord, that we would reflect you well. So we just commit that to you. In your precious name we pray. Amen.